We are facing a very strategic moment in the life of the church worldwide, I believe. We certainly see it here in Britain. As more and more people are raising their voice very specifically with increasing volume against Christian faith and the Christian church. There's nothing new about that. But in some ways, I believe we've lost a bit of ground over the last few generations and what will it take to bring it all back? What, what will it take? Now we know RT's ministry to us last year in which we're expecting at any moment the midnight cry, refer you to all of those messages, you'll find them online. But until then, what are we to do? We're to guard our hearts, guard our spirit, ensure that we are depending totally on God in the supply of his Holy Spirit and directing our lives according to his word. And then something will happen. My title this morning is The Graffiti Church. The Graffiti Church. I'm sure you're all familiar with the urban phenomenon of graffiti. Well, we're going to see how does this fit in to our lives as Christians. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Uh, The Apostle Paul is dealing with an attack upon his ministry an attack upon his apostleship, and all kinds of things were happening. They were criticizing him, and uh, there were all these kind of super apostles who were claiming more revelation, more spirituality than the apostle Paul himself. And so Paul has to write to this congregation that was affected by this, and this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, Epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Do you know that you are likely to be the only Bible that many people will ever read? You. This is the miracle of the new covenant. God has come and written something on our hearts. So God is a graffiti artist, if you, if you want to flow with that idea. Here Paul is saying that the ministry of the new covenant is about what God does by the Spirit deep in our hearts. And because that work is taking place in our hearts, something shows on the outside. Now, the graffiti phenomenon, maybe you think I'm a bit old-fashioned today. Maybe you will say that, you know, the way we communicate these days is by Twitters and, and Facebooks and things like that. But, you know, graffiti very often is what people Twitter about. So I still hold to this phenomenon. By the way, just in case you think I'm advocating something, it is illegal. And please don't try it at home, folks. But nevertheless, graffiti can open the door to the kind of response that is happening and what what the social commentary and social ideas are about. And I was uh, very uh, familiar with this when I was visiting once in, in, in Marseille. Just on the outskirts of Marseille by the sea, there's the Corniche, and that's a very highly populated area with big roads. And I noticed one day as I was walking, there was a door 
a door leading, leading to a narrow passageway that went down to a beautiful old fishing village, Vallon des Off, it's called. And in order to get there, you had to descend some steps, and the graffiti was everywhere. I looked at this graffiti, and I thought to myself, my, that's ugly. Then my eyes fell on the pavement, where a graffiti artist had inscribed something on the pavement, and this is what it read in highly colloquial French. This is what it said. Why are you old people always criticizing our art? So I looked again, and I thought, how beautiful all this uh, graffiti is. Um, Bansky is one of the most um, uh, popular of modern graffiti artists, and here is one of his recent works. I want you to have a look at it. You can see the artistic content here. Very accomplished artist. I understand that some of his graffiti work goes for a lot of money. But he is a social commentator. And here is some graffiti in which he is saying something. These, this is representing the Queen's Diamond, Diamond Jubilee celebrations. And here we have some kids in sweatshops making the Union flags which are displayed in this Diamond Jubilee. So that's quite a cutting and sharp social comment. I wonder what they are saying about the church. I wonder what graffiti they would be writing on the walls of your life, on the walls of the church. If you are an epistle known and read of all people, then what are they reading in your life? Another example of graffiti showing how it can use humor and, and so forth. Here we have an anarchist who is spray painted on this rough make studio. Uh, spread anarchy, it says. And then obviously another anarchist, more faithful to the cause, says, don't tell me what to do. I, I wonder what graffiti they're writing over our lives. Many ways we know that, what they're saying about the church, but what can we do about it? I believe that the world is watching the church all the time. They're watching. Why? Let's get behind that. Why? They're watching and they're waiting. Here is what I would propose. I know that when I interact with non-Christians who begin to talk about the church and talk about us and so forth, you know, they, they are watching us and waiting to see and longing to see if it's true. Have you thought about that? They would want nothing more than our message to be true because it is almost too good to be true that there is a God who loves us. This God loves us so much that he sent Christ to die for us and there is a way of, of living with God forever in eternity and that God's great plan is to have a big family who will live for his glory and display his glory forever and ever, that there is a way out of our mess, that there is a way in which we can rise and, and receive the good things that God has for us. But they are watching and waiting to look at our lives and to say, you know what, it's true, but all too often they turn away disappointed. And uh, they uh, say to themselves, well, can't be true after all, and... And then they become pretty angry about that. Have you noticed that the voices are getting louder and louder? Atheism is trying to make a comeback. I think atheists are under pressure because they predicted by the 21st century religion would be done in Europe and now it's every day, everywhere on the pages of the newspaper. So they're pretty disappointed about that. 
and they want to, want to make their point. And they've shifted from criticizing the Christian faith and all faith from a scientific point of view. They think they've already argued that. We know how we got here, according to scientists. Darwin demonstrated the origin of the species, and beyond that, people began to speculate and come up with scientific theories about the origin of life itself, and then shifted to cosmology and looked at the universe and said, we know how it all began, began with a big bang. Before that, there was nothing, and now there's a big bang. All scientifically proved, according to them, So they're moving away from saying your faith is irrational to a full frontal attack on the faith saying that it is immoral. Have you noticed that recently? Prominent people in media are crying out openly on media saying what a a monstrous God you believe in, the God who will allow suffering, the God who will kill babies, and the God who desires to be worshipped like an egotistical megalomaniac, the God who will throw you in hell forever if you don't do what he tells you, this kind of dictator, fascist God. You are immoral to believe in God. Big stuff, huh? Big stuff. But what's our response when we look, for example, of how the state has taken uh, its secular view and just implanted upon society, imposed upon society, a totally secular view of marriage, for example. What do we do? Wave our banners, tut, tut, hide away in our buildings, which we call churches, and just worship God in private. What do we do? What's our response? And my challenge today is this. It's time to change the graffiti over our lives. Now, as the world is watching us, so the world is always watching God would have it so when he raised up Israel, it was to reveal himself and his glory through Israel to the nations. Because God's plan was to bring in a covenant that would not be exclusive to Israel as a nation, but would extend to all nations. But we know that Israel's history was sad, came to a point where they'd so broken the covenant that God said, I'm going to give you the worst effects almost possible, which is to be exiled from the land Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed, and and you will be exiled to the nations. But something happened, which here God says, I will not tolerate. What is it that God will not tolerate? God said, I'm going to do something about this. What was the situation? God said, I'm going to restore you to your nation." And people might say, well, that's wonderful. God has finally decided that he still loves us. And uh, we're going to get back to our rightful place. And God is going to bring us back to our land. And God says, no, you've got to understand this. I'm not just going to bring you back to the land, but I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something new in you. I'm going to make a new covenant. Because you've seen now how this old covenant doesn't work because of you. Now I'm going to get to the real problem to show you what really has to change from within. And so we have these wonderful promises in Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel 36 that we're going to in a moment, where God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this covenant is going to be an everlasting covenant. And it's going to be a covenant in which I will change you from the inside out. Ezekiel 36 Verse 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that is soft and sensitive to me. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. God speaks through Ezekiel and says, a wonderful restoration is coming. And I'm making a new covenant, and this new covenant will open the way not just for Jews, but ultimately for Gentiles as well. Therefore, Israel, you have to come back to your full vocation, which is to bring me glory among the nations. And this is exactly what they had not done. They had not done that, which is what caused God to act. Verse 20, Ezekiel 36, verse 20. This is what provoked God to announce the new covenant. This is what he would not tolerate. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. Ouch. When they said of them, this is the graffiti, they are the people of the Lord and yet they've gone out of his land. Verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, I want you to notice God's motivation here. Uh, It's very popular, and it's true, but it's not the whole truth. Maybe it's not even the most important truth when we talk about why does God intervene? To save us. Of course he does it because he loves us. But there is a purpose beyond that. And that is to get glory to his name. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. I do not do this for your sake O Israel. But for my holy name's sake. Which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Now we're talking about the world watching us. And waiting to see if it is right. They should be able to look at our lives and say, you know what? It's true. God is real. And and see that very clearly. But unfortunately, the Israel of that day and also the Israel of Apostle Paul's day, as I'll come to in a moment. So also, in many respects, the church of today is failing God in what he's called us to do. Same in Paul's day when Paul is saying, listen, you people who say you are Jews and tell other people what to do, do you do it yourself? And he says, in fact, the prophetic saying is true of you also, Romans 2, 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So, at the moment, the graffiti, or the world looks at the church and spray paints on the walls of the church, they don't mean it. 
They don't believe it. It can't be true. And they spray paint things like, you're irrelevant. It's ridiculous. It's irrational. It's immoral. And they do that because they do not yet see what they should be seeing. I wonder what the graffiti would be written on the walls of our church, our churches, our homes, our families, our lives. And how is it that God said, you've profaned my name? What what are the things you'd expect? In this passage, there'd be, God would list a long list of things, but he mentions specifically in this context just two things, and that's found in verse 18 of Ezekiel 36. God tells them ultimately why it was that he had cast them away into the exile and what he was going to correct and restore when he brought them back. Therefore, he said, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. Bloodshed and idolatry. Very interesting. Think about that for a moment. It was Rabbi Hillel who was challenged one day to stand on one leg and quote the whole Torah. Could you stand on one leg and quote the whole Torah? Sure, he said. He stood on one leg and said, love God, love your neighbor. The rest is detail. Go and do it. (laughs) It is very similar to what Jesus said when he was summarizing all the requirements of God. Everything that boils, all boils down to this. Everything else is details. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. No idolatry there. And then he says, the second is very similar to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting. In Ezekiel's day, the double um, accusation of God, the double indictment was bloodshed and idolatry. See, they had moved away from loving God And putting him first in their lives and began to pursue other things, idolatrous things. And as a result of that, their relationships with others broke down even to the point of bloodshed. So the heart of it all was this. Instead of love for God and love for one another, they turned away from God to idols. And that produced violent hatred towards one another. So what message then did that send to the surrounding nations? What graffiti did that produce? Dwight Edwards, who is the great, 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 great grandson of the great Jonathan Edwards. He's written a book entitled The Revolution Within. And speaking of Ezekiel 36, he he describes the graffiti in these terms. The way they were living caused people to look at them and write this message. This is what we learn from these people. God is not enough and people don't matter. I wonder if they look at us today and say, you know what? They say they love God, but they pursue everything else just like we do. 
They say they're following God, but they're pursuing their careers, they're pursuing their own things, they're looking after themselves, and, and in fact, they're not satisfied with God himself, and they, they want to supplement faith in God just so that they can get what they want, and in fact, God serves them for this purpose. God, I will do what you tell me to do, but therefore, you've got to make life work for me. That's the deal. I'll be a good boy, you look after me. That's the deal. Do you know what? That's not the deal. That's not the deal. The deal is this, friends. If we are really talking about the God of the Bible, the God who is the ultimate reality, nothing before God but God, if that's the ultimate reality, what is the ultimate manifestation? The ultimate manifestation is the manifestation of that one glorious God. It is His glory. Do you know that God's overarching plan for the whole of the universe, for all of our lives, is that he should get glory to his name through our lives, that he should demonstrate his glory, yes, out of love, of course it is, but that he would demonstrate his glory. Therefore, there is no higher aim or objective at all than to live for God's glory. Jonathan Edwards involved in the great evangelical awakening in North America, put at the top of the list the glory of God. It is all about the glory of God. Not does this help me? Does this make me look good? Does this make me feel good? Does this satisfy me? No. But does it bring God glory? Imagine if we really believe that. I'm not asking you to doubt what you believe. I'm just saying, imagine if we really, really believed that. And that's what governed our lives. That's what guided our choices. That's what we pursued more than anything else. God himself and the manifestation of his glory. So that whether it went well for us or it worked out as we wanted, if all our prayers were answered immediately as we wanted or not at all, we would say, God, this is for your glory and I'm here for you. You're not here, as it were, just for me. Now... This is like stroking a cat the wrong way against the fur. Most people like to be stroked in the other way. But we are going right against the grain of the spirit, not just of the age, but the spirit of the world. And unfortunately, it's true, but there's not a level playing field out there. How can we break through in our society to show people that the God of the Bible is true? That is if we really, genuinely lived for the glory of God. And so let's take this off. Let's put up the graffiti that we would like to see. We'd like when people look at our lives to say, you know, I've watched you. In good times, you're not arrogant saying, look what my God, can, can your God do this? It's not about God, I'm using you for my purposes. What if they looked at us and could discern that in good times we are praising God, not arrogantly, thanking him for the blessings. How many people love the blessings of God? I've got two hands, I'm going to use them both. The rest of you don't. We love the blessings. And it's not wrong, but we don't put those first in our life. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When he says first, he means there are first things, but there are some other things. And if we get it right, first things first, and the other things second, that's fine. 
That's fine. But when we make second things, first things, and we try to pursue these other things rather than God, we are worshipping an idol. And we're saying God is not enough. What if we lived in such a way that they saw our lives and said, you know what? What your life tells me, your life tells me that Jesus is enough. That in good times or bad times, in prosperity or in testing times, when, when we're going through painful experiences or whether we are enjoying life and all, and all the good things that God very often wants to shower us with, but it's never guaranteed and we have no automatic right. There is no spirit of entitlement in the new covenant that God has to make life better for us. I think we need to examine our evangelism at times that says, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. I don't know that at last I've heard an evangelist actually say that, but somehow in the way that we live, it's about, look, you, you, don't you wish you could have a God like me? A God like my God. Look what he's done for me. And it's good to rejoice in the goodness of God. But when we put our trust in what God provides rather than God himself, when we seek the gifts rather than the giver, then we've become idolaters and we're living just like the world. What's your ambition? What's the difference between your ambition and your neighbor's ambition? Your colleague at work, what do they want? Do they want promotion just like you want promotion? Do they want a pay rise just like you want pay rise? Do they want a house in the country, a house in the city? or, or what? what is it? What's the difference? And... To want those things and in a certain way to pursue them is not wrong. Not wrong at all, but just don't make them first things. Because if God is first in your life, then whether you have these things or not, it doesn't matter. Because your primary purpose is to know God, to glorify him. And that's where the true enjoyment of life. And we know that the deal is not that we're going to get everything in this life In fact, for all we can talk about the blessings of God, and they're wonderful, more, Lord, please, but according to your will, you know best, Lord. We know that those promises God will, they will not fall, they will not fail, but for the most part, they're coming in the future kingdom of God. As one of the hymns says, now, the cross and conflict, then the perfect day. Do you know we're saved by faith? How many people recognize we're saved by faith? RT's message last Sunday made it very clear we're saved by faith and faith alone. But the Bible also says that when we are saved by faith, God gives us a hope. And hope relates to the future. We are saved by faith in hope. And the whole of our lives must be pointed towards the return of Jesus. That's why last year's teaching RT about the, the, the second coming and about the midnight cry that precedes the second coming is absolutely what is needed. That we should be living in moment by moment expectation, not of the 
immediate, immediate return of Christ, that will come, but of the next thing on God's prophetic clock, which is the midnight cry, when something will happen to awaken the church that Jesus really is coming true, and if our T is right and I agree with them 100%, that will usher in a revival and of, of dimensions the world has never seen, and there will be the, that will be the church's finest hour, and it will be all about the glory of God. Not about the glory of a ministry, the glory of a denomination. Not about my glory, my house, my 2.3 kids, or the rest of it. Please even up the average there, Lord, because I don't particularly want a 0.3 of a child. God, do whatever you want. Give me whatever is on your agenda to give me, but it's all for your glory. And when the world sees that we are like Moses, prepared to count the reproach of Christ better than all the treasures of this world, then they will say, it's real. It's real. Amen. How are you doing, people of God? Is this, is this too harsh today? Um, I got another message just in case I didn't have courage for this one. This is about, this is, this is ice cream. Okay, this is liver and onions. But li- li- listen, this is, I'm... Exercising my ministry as pastor teacher here in this congregation of you, you, of you people. And I, I want to tell you pastorally, I want nothing more for you than you shift from self-orientation to God-orientation. That you shift from your focus on second things uh, to first things. And we all struggle with this. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching for all of us. Because you see, when we look at our lives, we struggle with this statement. We would say by faith, God is enough. And we sing it, you're more than enough, you're all that I ever needed. And the song we'll sing at the end is Christ is enough. And we believe it, but it hasn't always sunk deep into our hearts and hasn't connected with that new heart and that new spirit within us where, which totally believes it. So there's a battle. And the battle that is going on inside us, we can call it battle of the flesh. By the way, when we talk about the battle, I want to tell you that it is a winnable battle. Because the Bible says you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. God's spirit lives in you. You are not what you were. You are a new creation. Everything has changed from the inside. Something has happened. And that's who you really are. But the battle is still there. What is this battle? The battle is, first of all, the battle against selfishness, self-glory versus God's glory. That battle is going on. Even when I preach the sermon, let's be, let's be open here. I have to look at myself and say, what do I most want? Do I want to preach a message that you will say, wow, he was on fire today. Be careful because you might get burnt. <laughs> or, or is it because I want to do well in the pulpit? Of course I want to do well in the pulpit. I want newcomers today to go home and say, I want to join Kensington Temple. My, that's the finest preaching I've heard in London. Mm. Don't, 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 don't encourage me. <laughs> don't encourage my flesh. But what is more important, whether you are impressed by my preaching or whether you go out here saying, do you know, I want God's glory more than anything else. I want nothing more than to see God glorified in my life. And that will be hard and difficult at times because I have this tendency, fleshly tendency, to want my glory. Thank you, Jesus. I want my glory. 
Glory be to you, Jesus, and let some of it happen to me at the same time. So there's this love of God versus love of self. There's, there's the, these competing passions, competing passions. I read a definition of holiness recently. <clears throat> Here's the definition. Holiness, the unrestrained indulgence of the new nature. The unrestrained indulgence of the new nature. Certainly, we'd understand what unholiness is. It's the unrestrained indulgence of the old nature. So the new nature has a passion. We saw in some of the recent messages that we have been made partakers of the divine nature, meaning we have a new nature in us, a nature which has been shaped, created by God, according to God, to be like him, There is a God nature in us. That's the new nature. This is the born again experience. We need to preach that more. It's going out of fashion to preach the born again experience. It's not just about what you do, what you think, how you feel. It's about receiving new life. The very seed of God in you. And because the seed of God is in you and you are a new nature, your heart has been changed. It's a work of God. It's supernatural. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. God has taken away that old stony hard heart and put a new heart there which is soft and sensitive to God. God has taken away that old spirit and given us a new spirit. His Holy Spirit which will enable us to love God, and that new heart in you throbs with passion for the living God. And that's our our job. Fellowship is about, brother, can I use you for some fellowship? Would you stand up there? I promise not to embarrass you too much. Stand up there. Up here, step up if you can. Okay, let's see if you've been going to the gym. Okay, all right. (laughs) So you are a brother. Okay, what do you mean okay? Yes or no? Yes, I am a brother. He's a brother. Thank God for that. Okay. So, I'm a brother. You're a brother. What's our job? Teach the word. Okay, yes. But when we fellowship together, my job is to do this. Are you ready? You ready for, don't, just put your hands behind your back just in case okay. you're, you're one of these guys that defends themselves too easily. Yeah. There's something in here, brother. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the new nature. And my job is to get that new nature and provoke that new nature. (laughs) Was I hurting you or tickling you? No, it's okay. It's ticklish. It's ticklish. Provoke the new nature. Book of Hebrews puts it like this. Consider carefully how you may provoke one another. Fan into flame that passion. So our conversation, when we talk together, how's your family? How's your job? How's your business? How's your motives? How's your spiritual life? And soon when we start talking about that, there's a connection. The Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of God in me starts to, starts to work. And soon, through fellowship, that fire begins to burn. And, and you leave with more passion for Jesus. And I leave with more passion for Jesus. That's how we are to fellowship with one another. Give him a round of applause. He was very patient. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the provocative power of Christian fellowship. And the battle that we have to help one another fight is the battle against the flesh. And that happens in two main ways. Selfishness, self-glory, rather than God's glory. And 
and wrong priorities, reversing priorities where we fill our lives with all the pursuit of second things rather than pursuing Christ above all things. Now, I want to tell you, this battle is winnable. Very, very winnable. In fact, you could argue the battle has already been won. You can argue that. Because in in our position in Christ, not only are we in right relationship with God, but we are connected by his Holy Spirit in the new person, the new man, the inner person, the Spirit of God within us. Means we have changed from within. And in some parts of the Bible, it's an absolute statement where it says in Romans chapter 8, you are not in the flesh. Not You ought not to be in the flesh. No, you are not in the flesh. Absolute statement. Because we have been set free from the flesh. And the Bible says, you are in the spirit. In other words, you are not dominated or controlled by the old nature. The Holy Spirit has taken control of your life. However, we still have to deal with those old flesh desires, those flesh thoughts, those fleshly ways of thinking and reacting, which still seem so natural to us. But as I said, it's a winnable battle. Because Paul says, how do we do it? We do it through the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires and the lusts of the flesh. If you, through the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit within you, that new nature within you, must triumph and can triumph because it's a done deal as far as God's concerned. Let me summarize just a few things about this before we have our final worship time this morning. Because of your position in Christ, because of what God has done through you, through the blood of Jesus and the operation of the Spirit within you, three things are true about you. More than three, but I'm giving you three. First of all, You have a new purity, a wonderful purity. Remember Ezekiel, I will cleanse you from your filthiness. How wonderful, what a a message. Somehow we could get across to our modern generation. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. And such were some of you. Who's he talking about? Go back and he lists a horrendous list of the things that The Corinthian churches were still struggling with perhaps, and certainly this was their background, the kind of things which today are real important issues to do with morality. And he says, such were some of you. You were, meaning you're not now. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. A new purity. You have been washed and cleansed. And here, he's not just talking about forgiveness of sins, he's also talking about the inner cleansing, the release of the, of the power of release from the power of sin on the inside of us. A new purity. Secondly, a new passion. A new passion. You know, before we, we come to Christ, Our nature is corrupt and hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. Somebody once described it like this. You were infected at conception. 
with an anti-God virus. You know all these modern atheists who talk about, oh, you Christians have got stuck with a God virus. It was us who first accused them of having an anti-God virus, so I suppose that's a bit of graffiti talk. But the truth is, the Bible says, in sin did my mother conceive me. That means we were born with a bias away from God. And it's incurable. Nothing can alter that. No discipline. Nothing can change that. No discipline. No religion. Nothing can change that. Only God can change that. When we come to Christ and he gives us a new heart. And this new heart has new desires. He says the stony heart, resistant, impenetrable, unresponsive. The new heart is a soft heart, flesh. Not flesh in the negative sense, but flesh as opposed to stone. Soft, ready to respond to God. And this, this heart beats with a, with a passion. And this means that the whole of the orientation of our lives has changed. Before your heart was inclined away from God, now your heart directs you towards God. In fact, in the deepest part of you, that part of you which is most true of you, your new self, you long for God. And you long for holiness. You hunger for God. You want to worship Him. You desire God's glory. And it hurts when people ridicule Him. When they misunderstand Him. Where when they blaspheme Him. It hurts. It hurts even more when they slander you. It does. You think, they're dishonoring my Lord. If only they could see him, if only they could know him, they would see how wonderful he is and thank God that one day God will act to clear his name. And every person that has made an accusation, they will have their time in court, but none of them will be standing in that day. They'll be on their face saying, I worship you, a living God. All these people say, when I get to heaven, I'll tell God a thing or two. You will. You won't be able to speak for a thousand years at least. Because we, uh, and we, we, we feel that. It, it hurts us when, when people speak against the one we love and malign him. And say, God is the one who brings bone cancer to kids. No, he's not. God is, gives good gifts. It's the devil that's a troublemaker. We just need to read the whole Bible. Not just that God created everything good. But Genesis 3, when the world came into corruption. And Revelation 21, when God says there's going to be new heavens and a new earth where indwells righteousness. God is going to fix it in his own time. In his own way. But in the meantime, it hurts. Because we long, as Jesus taught us to pray as we did in the beginning. The opening of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, this is community. It's not just you and me isolated, it's us together. They need to see this worked out in community. Our Father, to be able to call that God our Father, personal and corporate Father. He is our God, we are His people. Our Father, hallowed be your name. May your holy name be honored. And and that's what Ezekiel prophesied and said, when they see you, when they see God honored and hallowed in your name, then they will know Him. And declare him. Just as Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This new passion, we long to orientate our lives towards him. Our passion is for him. Nothing, nothing, nothing compares with him. Even the very best that the world can give. And you know what? 
in this country, for most of us, for most of the time, we have a lot by way of blessing, materially. We don't get arrogant and say, this is because I'm leading a good Christian life. Tell that to our friends being crucified in Iraq right now. Tell that to those Christians who died on the mountains of starvation. No, 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 no. It's not about how well we're doing, how comfortable life is. It's, it's our passion for God that says, listen, whatever happens, I want you. My purpose on this planet is not to have a good life, but to get to know you, a new passion. Let's learn how to stimulate that passion. Am I stirring up your passion today? Or are you going to go out saying, he told us that we stink of graffiti? No, no, no. This is what's going to change the graffiti. New purity, new passion, and a new power. A new power. This is so important. And I'm not so sure that Christians, that we really grasp this. In order to do something that pleases God, that's really pleasing to him, three things must apply. We must be doing what he wants. Not doing what we want, but doing what he wants. So it's about action. Secondly, it's about motivation, doing it for the right reasons. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. You can even be preaching the right thing for the wrong reason. And that's not pleasing to God. So doing the right thing for the right reason. And thirdly, in the right power. Don't forget that. It's possible to do the right thing in your own energy. And if you're motivated towards the glory of God, it is hard to do it in your own energy. But if you're still motivated for your own glory, practically everything you do will be in your own strength. One of the reasons why I believe so many Christians are discouraged today is because they've tried and tried again and tried again and have still got nowhere. It's time to discover that new power on the inside. Not self-effort, but spirit-directed, God-focused, spirit-enabled effort. The Christian life is a supernatural life. So this is referred to many times in the Bible, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Zechariah 4, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Jesus in John 15, I'm the vine. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Which means what Paul went on to say in Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, it's not just about what we say and how we refute people with logical arguments or scientific evidence as important as some of those things are. It's not just that we were able to tell them, my God's bigger than your God. But when we show them the fruit, when we give them a taste of love and they say, that's delicious, what else have you got? We have joy, we have peace. And they say, that's amazing. I want some of that. Are you all ready for me? So rather than shouting more shrilly and more hysterically than the atheists, rather than beating down the door of number 10 saying, why have you changed the definition of marriage? Let's show them marriages which are centered on Christ. Let's show them that. Let's show them families that are centered on Christ. 
show them people who know how to praise God and, and, and worship Him despite their circumstances. That's more real than anything they can see and touch. Let's show them a community of people who are demonstrating that our life's choices are made for God's glory and our ambition is for Him and Him alone and how we treat one another, and how we treat the poor, how we treat the marginalized, how we treat the persecuted, how we pray for those who despitefully use us and speak against us and mistreat us. For that is the real character of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. Not by their gifts, but by their fruits. And when they see this and taste of this, they will write, the graffiti that glorifies God. You have watched these people, you know, I can say two things about them. Jesus is enough. He's everything we need. And people matter. Just watch them. You just look, see them, you watch them. Look how they love one another. Look how they serve their community. One thing you know about those Christians, we can learn people matter. And then gradually that old graffiti will be written, overwritten by new graffiti. It won't happen in a moment, it won't happen in a day. But if we live for the glory of God, it will happen. Amen.